Uh, first things first, I want, to, uh, I want to welcome our fourth and fifth grade class is here with us tonight. Can you guys give it up for our fourth and fifth grade class? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an observation about our fourth and fifth grade class. A whole lot of females. Is there any males in, in the class generally? It's all females all the time. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that's, that's, uh, that, that's really interesting and maybe saving you guys from some potential drama in the class, not having the males around. But we love you guys so much. And uh, I ask that tonight that you guys would be a part of this um, so that you would know, A, how much we appreciate you. But tonight, I think there's an opportunity uh, for us to learn together. And so thank you guys for, for being here. Okay, we love you so much. Now, I want to I wanna begin with an image and a hypothetical situation. Uh, this image, uh, I know, maybe creates some intrigue. Um, but let's say for hypothetical purposes, I told you, I know for sure that in this well, there is $900,000. I told you I know this for sure, okay? In fact, I'm so sure that I've seen it with my own eyes. And let's say hypothetically that I actually, on the next slide, which isn't real in this case, I showed a picture of the $900,000 on the bottom of this well. And then in our hypothetical situation, as your curiosity started to rise, I literally said to you, it's not just that I know that there's $900,000 in this well, but I also know precisely where the well is, okay? And the whole scenario and the situation is, uh, whoever would like to receive the $900,000, all you have to do is, is go to the well. Now, um, it would create a really interesting scenario in the room, wouldn't it? Because the question would be, well, who, who's going to like wait it out? You know, who's trying to text my wife to see, do you know, you know, so we can skip out here and find the loot, right? Like, my guess is there wouldn't be any of you, though, that would be hesitant. If you really believed and trusted that I knew what I was talking about, that I wasn't lying or tricking you, and that in all actuality there were $900,000 in the bottom of that well, my guess is every single one of us, would do all we possibly could to run to that well with a great amount of fervor. I've been wrestling with that image and idea and how quickly we're drawn by money. Uh, maybe for you, money isn't like the, the biggest lure. Uh, maybe for you, it's relationships. Uh, maybe relationships aren't the biggest lure. Maybe for you, it's notoriety. Uh, maybe for you it's power or control. But whatever it is that like gets us out of our seat and puts the, the fish hook in our mouths and drags us, you know how quickly your response is. And so it's so interesting to me in that hypothetical scenario how when all of a sudden you flip the situation and things change. Next slide. Here's what the writer in Hebrews chapter 4 says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, in other words, is this true? Is it possible for you and I to draw near to approach 
to get in proximity of the throne of the Savior and Creator of the universe? Is that present? Is it here? How so quickly we get up out of our seat at the opportunity for the dollar, notoriety, power, relationships. And how slow and lethargic and complacent we are when the literal king of the universe has said, listen, I've made a way for you to approach my throne in full confidence and I've given a way for you actually to communicate with me consistently through the intercessor Jesus, so come. Now the well with 900,000 or whatever imagery is best baiting you, I think now you would agree with me, pales in comparison to the opportunity to be in the presence and make requests and give praises to Almighty God, right? So why in the world is the dollar so luring then? Why does it seem like when it comes to the issue of prayer, we're sitting on our hands? Why is it? that the two greatest issues that face the Christian church are a lack of desire to pursue Christ through his word and a lack of desire to pursue God through prayer, and yet these two things are the two greatest gifts he's given us. He saved us and provided a way for us to talk to him and a way for us to read about him through his word, and yet we distance ourselves. Well, I think that's because of what you believe is driving your desire for prayer. Next slide, I wanna propose it to you this way. When you pray, what drives it? I think for a lot of you, next slide, it's this. It's guilt. Um, You hear the two greatest things and some of you have been in a context before where you instantly hear shame, shame, shame. Like, like, so tell me about about your prayer life. Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. Well, you know that the Bible says that you should be praying, you know, and all of a sudden the right hook of the Bible undercuts us. And so we, we feel, well, I, I guess I should or better pray then to make sure that, you know, the next time you ask me this a seemingly uncaring but diligent question that I have a good answer. Listen, uh, when I was growing up, it was often bent towards rules and regulations and the list of things that the believer must do to show themselves as true followers of Christ. Uh, Here's what I'm asking. Is your prayer life driven by guilt? Well, I better pray. I mean, he saved me, so I guess I better do something to work on or build this relationship. I think for others of you, it is driven by emergency. Uh, Your whole entire prayer life is ebbing and flowing with the waves of your circumstances. Uh, Good days, you find your prayer life distancing quickly. In the bad days, you find yourself on your knees. Uh, It's the old adage, right, that every soldier in the foxhole all of a sudden believes in God. It's the every Christian going through turmoil all of a sudden has a rise in their prayer life, and it seems like, at least maybe for me, that when God answers those prayers, at least in my perspective, answers them, it's so insanely easy then to slip back into a distanced communion with the Lord. Well, to others of you, some of uh, what drives it is relationship. The God of the universe has offered a way. 
He's offered a way for us to be unified. He's offered a way for me to approach him. I'm asking you tonight, as you enter this room right now, what is driving your prayer life? Well, I know um, still others of you are like, what prayer life? Uh, For others of you, it's been months, right? And I'm not talking about the, the meal prayers that have become so rote and lifeless that you don't even know what you're praying for. Have you ever experienced that? All right, now let's pray at the meal. And someone spouts off some poetic justice prayer that they heard. No power in it. Just to delay the inevitable of eating. But what if tonight we didn't go on a guilt trip? What if tonight wasn't about all of us feeling bad about our lack? But what if tonight the Holy Spirit came in this room in such a way, next slide, that all of a sudden we believed that actually there can be a life of prayer. And so if you've ever struggled, if you've ever battled to pray, if you've ever felt like, as Brandon has already shared, that your prayers are hitting the ceiling or that there's some massive distance between you and the Lord, this night is for you. So open your Bibles, my friends, to Ephesians chapter 3. Certainly one of, if not the most famous prayer in the writings of Paul. Unbelievable power in this text. And I cannot wait for us to walk through this together tonight. Ephesians chapter 3. Let's start here in verse 14. For this reason... He started verse 1 of chapter 3 with that same opening statement. Many believe that he opened chapter 3 saying, for this reason, all of the doctrine that he states in chapter 1 and 2, and now all of a sudden he like goes on kind of a, a tangent. And so now he's, he's back to where he wanted to start or the Spirit was prompting him to start, and he comes back to his prayer. So for this reason, all the doctrine and theology I've built in the first couple chapters, Paul says... I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Uh, So it's awesome because every once in a while I get a question, Mark, what is the appropriate posture when you pray? And it's really, really awesome to see new parents, uh, us included, when they have young kids and they're teaching them how to pray, right? It's really interesting because generally what happens is you're sitting around the table with friends And it's time to let the child be the dog and pony show, right? Okay, now like fold your hands, right? And we've we've worked on this, right? We know what the holy posture of prayer is. And, you know, and so you you watch the little one and a half year old, okay? You like, you know, bow their heads so nicely and fold their hands. And and then they start getting older and start uh, flatulating during prayer and start belching during prayer, which is the current state of my children at times. Not my daughter, not my daughter, okay? I I see you whispering right there. You're like, that's Dawson and Maddox. Yes, you're right. It's interesting how we train our kids, isn't it? Think about it. We train the posture physically. But I'm asking, how often have you trained the one-year-old on the heart? You see what I'm saying? Okay, so look like this and bend the knees this way. And make sure the hands are crossed exactly appropriately, and then it's a prayer. And so it's no wonder why some of our kids grow up, or some of you who have been trained that exact way, 
grew up believing that prayer only looks like this. And so the image here of Paul bowing his knees to the ground, first of all, I want to make sure you understand, is in terms of Judaism, in terms of the culture, it's very, very different. Now, uh, some of you are like, but what about Daniel? What about Daniel when he prayed? He got on his knees. You're right. Uh, But what about uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he gets on his face, the scripture says? You're right. But just about, those are the only mentions in the scripture. There's a few others, but just about. Uh, The general way that Jewish culture prayed is by standing. And so Paul isn't getting in a posture that he's been taught. That's my point. Paul, in his heart, is thrust to his knees. Not because he saw someone else do it. But because what's happening in him is causing a deep-rooted humility that as a servant bows before the king, Paul, the great apostle, bows before Christ. And so I'm just, I'm inviting all of you in right now to some of you erase some of the things that you've learned about the posture Tonight isn't going to be about the physical forum. It's going to be about what is happening in here. What's going on in the heart? What is the process between mind and heart that is taking us to the person of Christ and teaching us a new way? So Paul says, I get on my face. I bow my knees, he says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This king, this father is the originator of the family of God. Verse 16, check this out. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul is praying for people that are not in front of his face. Again, if you're just joining us, uh, Paul's writing this from a Roman prison. He's on house arrest. He's penning this, or a scribe is. And he's not looking at the church in Ephesus. In fact, it's been, listen, please hear me. It's been six to seven years since he's been there. I think about how difficult it is for us to follow up with a friend that we haven't seen in two weeks, let alone a church that we haven't visited, that we've only heard about. So praying for this church in Ephesus from a jail cell, he gets on his knees. And there's going to be three facets of this prayer. The first we see in verse 16. Let me read it one more time and then we'll break it down. That according to the riches of his glory, here's his request, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I want to ask this next slide. When have you muscled through life on your own strength versus walking in the strength that comes through the Spirit? Uh, Did you see what Paul prayed? He doesn't say, "Uh, hey, church in Ephesus, I know things are tough. I know there's persecution that's pending. I know that the worship of Artemis is dominant in Ephesus. So listen, Pull up your bootstraps and figure it out. Work harder. Dive deeper. You guys can do it. And all the other inspirational, 
comments he could have said. He doesn't say that. He prays for power to be strengthened through the spirit that's within them. I'm asking you, when have been times in your life where you've just muscled through? Where you just had to be strong? Where the understanding of what it looked like to truly walk in step with the spirit was so devoid from your mind because you're like, listen, I, I just have to survive, right? Because my daughter's in the room, Avery, I love you. I thought I would share um, what I know many parents resonate with is the unbelievable difficulty of parenting. Can I please get an amen? I was talking with a, a dear sister this morning about that fact. I mean, you love these kids and you care for these kids and you would do anything for these kids and you pour out your life for these kids and you shepherd these kids and then they're in the van with weaponry, and they will not listen to a word that you are saying. I mean, I, I feel like this is the constant pattern of our life. We get in our, our minivan when I'm driving our man van, right? And it's like a containment cell of chaos, okay? Uh, Avery often is sitting in the middle because she is sitting there singing Kumbaya, reading her scripture, okay? But the two, the two boys, the riffraff, it doesn't matter what they have. Literally, this happened a couple weeks ago. Avery, you remember this, okay? All of a sudden, Dawson is sitting in the back, and he has decided that he's going to use the little arm, you know, the arm thing in the van as a weapon, okay? So he puts it in a place, right, where if Maddox turned around quick enough, Maddox's forehead would hit it. And so he, like, kind of slants it on. He's like, hey, Maddox, boom, right? And I'm looking in the rear view. I hear one son crying. I hear the other son celebrating, Right? Right? I mean, it's just the, this containment of chaos. And, and I'm turning around, and I have to be honest, in that particular moment, there was absolutely nothing in me that sat back and said, Spirit, take control. <laughs> like, Lord, I, I need your patience, the fruits of the Spirit. God, just come out, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I felt like I was experiencing the antithesis of the fruits of the Spirit. No joy, no kindness, no patience. No self-control. Does anyone else like this? And so you feel like as a parent at times, at least I do, I'm sure my wife does, that sometimes it's just like we just got to survive today. One more van ride. Listen, kids, just no blood today. Just no blood, okay? Right. And so we muscle through. Another scenario. Um, when we started uh, this church, in 2005, coming up on our 12-year anniversary, um, I sat in a church planning assessment, and uh, John Ryan, who's a dear friend, he uh, pastors a church called Summit in O'Fallon, he, uh, he took me aside one day, and in boldness, he looked at me and he said, Mark, I want you to know something. He said, uh, you're a gifted man, you're a called man. And he said, it will be very, very possible for you to plant this church and survive solely on your gift sets. He said, you could plant this church completely devoid of Jesus and ask everyone just to join the masquerade. And in that moment, I thought he was crazy. I'm like, well, John, that's not going to happen. My heart is to to with some dear brothers plant a God-fearing church, a Christ-centric church, a church that believes that 
We don't have anything but Jesus. And then I remember having to teach through Genesis as a 25-year-old pastor. And in the first six chapters, you have rape, incest, and murder. And everything in me, everything in me knew that I, I had to be fully reliant on Christ. That was the only way I could get through. But my flesh was saying, listen, Mark, listen, Mark. If you just, if you put in a few more hours, if you study a little bit harder, you, you, don't, you don't really need to waste all of this time falling on your face and asking for God to help. Mark, listen, like, just do what you know how to do. Get up in front of people and preach. And so I remember early on, and I still experience it, this war that rages within me. God, do I really need you? And the flesh that says, Mark, just muscle through. In the end, if you muscle through, Mark, the glory is going to be yours, not God's. That's the lie here. I'm asking you, have you ever muscled through? There's a reason why Paul is pleading for spiritual power for the church in Ephesus because he knows the damage of self-strength. You know it too. I know it all too well. Let's look at that. Next slide. The damage of self-strength is this. Number one, there's a hidden exhaustion. Why do I say hidden? Because the whole premise is you're trying to muscle through so that people think you're strong enough. And so like inwardly, night after night, utterly exhausted, distant from the Lord, not walking in step with the Spirit, but you're supposed to look like this. You're supposed to say Jesus at the right time. You're supposed to live holy. You're supposed to care for others. And so there is this hidden exhaustion that many of you know all too well that begins to reach out in hidden caverns for things to provide comfort. When it's public time, oh, it's go time. It's, it's go to the Halloween party time. It's put on the mass time. It's I'm strong enough time. But behind closed doors, I am so utterly exhausted and weak that I need all of these things apart from Christ to fulfill something. Paul is praying for spiritual power and strength because he knows the damage of self-strength. Number two, the damage of self-strength is faith is never ever stretched. Why? Because you only have faith insofar as your gifting or calling will take you and that is not faith. Your faith is never stretched. You come to moments where maybe you're believing that God is calling you to something, but then in your mind, you see the impossibility. It's easier for you to thrive, easier for me to thrive in something that I know how to do or something that I know what to do instead of being stretched to the uttermost where all I have is Christ, fully exposed. It's Jesus or death, that's it. But self-strength Faith is never stretched. You live within this caution tape mentality. Oh God, I'll do whatever you want as long as, you know, I don't have to believe so much that all this is gonna come from you. Insanely damaging. What I'm hoping is happening right now is that some of you are being awakened to your current state. 
The damage of self-strength, number three, is suffering and sacrifice are never, never seen as a gift. In fact, you're running from it because you know in, in your own self-strength trying to muscle through, you experienced that before. You don't want to go back there. When you know when the power of spiritual strength that's walking in step with the Holy Spirit that's in you, you know what happens in suffering. Is it thrusts you deeper into communion with the Lord. Causes a greater reliance when you're walking in step with the Spirit. But on self-strength, please do not send me back there. When some of the most cherished times any of us could ever have is when God would allow pain in our life to know his nearness. But self-strength pulling up the bootstraps, another day of working hard, no. Please leave that by the wayside. And finally, the damage of self-strength is seen in this image. Next slide. This is what Gandhi says. He says, strength does not come from physical capacity. It comes from an indomitable will. Uh, What he's saying is it comes from a will that says, uh, I won't give up. I'll never stop. I'm not going to be, even for term's sake, dominated. I appreciate the uh, poem. Grateful for the graphic in the background, but I do not believe in that one iota. Uh, Power and strength are only seen in my weakness when the Lord through His Holy Spirit for His glory is moving through me and you and us. It's not in my ability or your ability to stand our ground. When we stand our ground against the devil's schemes, it's because he has given us the full armor. It's never our armor. It's never your doings. But you guys know as well as I do, this is the kind of stuff we're being fed. Just go home, have some fun, and Google image inner strength. And there is an evening of entertainment. Quote after quote, butterfly after butterfly, okay? Of you can do it and go for it. It's it's why we're so addicted to self-help stuff. It's why we're so anti-self-help stuff. It's why we preach God's word. And not anecdotes or quotes from famous people. He has given us through his word, the opportunity to know spiritual strength that comes through the power of the Spirit, that is why Paul prays for it. He says, church in Ephesus, I'm going to bow my knees from Rome and pray that you are overwhelmed by spiritual strength. But he's not done. Verse 17 through 19, the second phase of his prayer, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, there's two general understandings of the word dwell in the Greek. Uh, There's sort of a stranger passing by, stopping in, kind of like the hotel dwell. And there is a, I'm setting up a permanent camp with you kind of dwell. I'm not going anywhere kind of dwell. Just so we're on the same page as we study this text It's the latter that Paul is talking about, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He's setting up camp. He's not going anywhere. He's not a stranger stepping into some sort of hotel or motel, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Look at this. Through faith, 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and verse 19 and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The danger when you read the scripture, especially when you get to moments like this, is that the rhetoric is so beautiful, you don't examine the truth. Uh, let me show you the truth this way. Next slide. You guys remember what this is? This is the temple of the goddess Artemis. You guys remember? Uh, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was in Ephesus. Uh, I've done more and more and more research on Artemis, and here's what I've learned. It wasn't just that Asia Minor was dominated by worshiping Artemis. It was probably the most worshipped she, the most worshipped deity in, in, in the entire Asia. And so in Ephesus, you have the, uh, the epicenter of this. Now, here's the question. Why would Paul, to the church in Ephesus, all of a sudden spend two and a half verses of his prayer on being rooted, founded, built up in love? Why would he do that? Because in the worship of Artemis, I'll tell you what's not happening. What's not happening is the promises of Artemis' love for her worshipers. Her worshipers actually are the ones that, that come and make sacrifice to her. And being the goddess of fertility, if the sacrifice is appeased or appropriate or good enough, then guess what? Then you're worthy enough to worship Artemis. And what Paul says, much to the contrary, is that there is a love of Christ who sacrificed himself for you. Think about the difference here of the deities, one who's not real, one who's king. One who says, love me enough, and then guess what, you can worship me, and another one who actually says, I loved you enough that I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. And so when he pleads to this church to be rooted in love, he is telling them, listen, 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 please understand me. This God is not Artemis. And I've been gone for seven years, and I'm sure you've been tempted by the world to go back, to worship the idol, to give in to the cultural demands. Don't do it. Remember, be rooted in love. The powerful love of Christ Christ dwelling in your hearts. I was processing all that, and all of a sudden, I was brought back to Sunday school. Next slide. Let's just sit back and enjoy this here for a second. Just enjoy. Feel free to get out your phone or a lighter here. I see you, rabbit. There's the butterfly, classic, right?
All right, all right, that's good, that's good, that's good. Some of you guys having flashbacks. <laughs> Nothing says Jesus loves me like a spider singing it, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, it's funny to think back singing that song. And yet what an interesting choice of first song that I could have been taught. Uh, maybe it loses a little something with the jumping bunnies. But is there a greater truth? Six, seven, eight years old. Coming to the realization that even though I'm suffering, he loves me. Getting to the point where you believe in your heart at a young age, all could fall, all could fall apart, but he loves me. Unfortunately, I think many of you have succumbed to this statement. Now, I don't know what it is in your life or what the scenario was or what the hurt was or what the confusion was. But I'm picturing Paul not just saying some nice poetic words from a cell. I picture his heart bleeding out as he knows if you forget that he loves you, if you question that he loves you, if you say, this is the thing that proves it. You see, I've been telling you all along, there's no way that the God of the universe could somehow be interested and care about me. See, this proves it. I picture his heart bleeding out, saying, dear God, fists clenched as his knees are rubbing up against the ground and he is asking God in faith to make sure that the church in Ephesus stays rooted in his love because the moment they begin to question it, their eyes begin to wander on the things of this world when they doubt his love. What if the exact same things that the world would say, this is why I know he's not a loving God, are the things the church is saying, this is why we know he is. Look at how he cared for us amidst pain. Look at how when all was lost, he was still there. Look at how he forgave the unforgivable. Look at how he continued to pursue me even when I turned my back on him. That's a God whose love does not stop and who Romans 8 says that kind of love I can never be separated from in Christ. And so you picture this man pleading. Let them know the love of Christ. Let them be built up in it. And then he says an interesting statement at the end of verse 19. He says this that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Does anyone else think that that's, that's a really weighty statement, okay? Well, sometimes when I need to understand weighty statements, uh, I go to some other theologians, and 
Uh, Of all the theologians that I read on this particular text, I thought John MacArthur says it best. Here's what he says, next slide. The inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit leads to the indwelling of Christ, which leads to abundant love, which leads to God's fullness in us. Look at this. To be filled up to all the fullness of God is indeed incomprehensible, even to God's own children. It is incredible, he says, and indescribable. Look how the quote ends. This is just, I think, beautiful and true. There is no way this side of heaven we can fathom that truth. We can only believe it and praise God for it. So he is pleading that they would be so impacted, be filled with the fullness of God. And you just even begin in your mind to like, what would that even look like? What would be the attributes that that would show themselves as God working through our lives? And I love what MacArthur says. Look, on this side of heaven, we just know it to be true. We get to believe it and praise God that through his spirit, somehow the fullness of God dwells in us. And so now we've arrived. Verse 20 and 21. It's, it's one of the most quoted doxologies there is. It's one of the most mistreated. I'm going to even make a bolder statement. It's one of the most mistaught. Why? Because we get to this point. Cue the music. Cue the, you know, the the drama underneath. Lured in by the, the poetry or the rhythmic pattern of this doxology. Instead of sitting back and really taking in how Paul ends this prayer on his knees. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him, Be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And again, like it's so powerful just reading it. We could just say, listen, everyone, have a great night. Not a hymn. We even have an amen in the word. Like this is just perfect. See you guys next week. But I think we have to pause and ask a very, very poignant question. The question is this. Now the answer to this question is one that I've arrived to at many points in my life that I've had to be reminded of when prayer began to get rote. It's not the obvious answer. It's the answer that I think the church likes to hide. Uh, Many of the answers that would be given at this point is why does Paul pray this prayer? Well, Uh, He prays it because he's trying to teach them how to pray. He's praying this prayer from the prison cell because he knows that in so doing, that there's going to be some encouragement that happens in Ephesus. You see, what I've learned, I'm sure you've seen this too, prayer is used as the Christian encouragement. I'm praying for you. It's the biggest Christian lie, at least one of Hey, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for you. I never intend to do that, actually, but I'm going to tell you that 15 times that you think I'm holy and righteous and that we're in community together. I'm praying for you, brother. The Lord sees our heart. The Lord knows how many times that's been a lie. 
And so some would say, well, Paul's praying this because he wants the church to be encouraged. Oh, look, Paul cares about us. That's so nice. Thank you, Paul, all the way from the jail cell. But that's not why he prays it. The life of prayer, a life that is driven by prayer, there is one component that drives that sort of praying. Paul prays because he believes. Mark, come on, like, it has to be deeper than that. Like, where's the cool equation or the graph that helps us really unearth all the things happening in our life? If you believe the well has something to provide, you go to the well. If you don't believe it, you don't. You hesitate, you stop short. Why does he pray from a a prison cell? He believes that God hears his prayers. He believes that though he hasn't been there for seven years, that God all of a sudden can act. That God is able to do far more than even Paul can even imagine. He's not beating the floor on his knees thinking that somehow this is merely going to encourage the church. He is praying because he believes. Well, I've had to ask myself a very, very difficult question that now I pose to you. You don't need to ask yourself if you believe. Your prayer life answers the question for you. I don't have to look at you guys and all of a sudden say, all right, so how are you doing with belief? I don't have to come up with some nice symmetry of truth where we would leave convicted and challenged. Every single one of us right now can see, based on our prayer life, how much we believe. You believe he hears? Do you believe he's able to do far more abundantly? Do you believe that through Christ we're literally pleading to the throne of God? Do you believe a city can be saved because God would move in response to the communion of his people? Do you believe that your kids could come to know Jesus because of day in after day out pleading on your face? Do you believe that he could change your heart toward your spouse? Do you believe that the God of the universe is the God of the universe and not just some myth or fairy tale that we've created to make ourselves feel better about eternity? Do you believe? Well, tonight we're going to pray. This whole auditorium We have benches around your seats. Feel free to pray and express however it is that you would like. 
Uh, for some of you, this is the coming out party. It's been months or years since you've communed with the Lord. And now here with all your brothers and sisters, no one to applaud you, but a God to welcome you. I'm going to guide us through several different avenues of prayer. And we're going to give you space and time just to cry out for the Lord. But before we do that, I'm going to ask God to flood this room with faith. We believe that you're the author and perfecter of it. We believe, God, that you've provided the chance to know you. And I pray right now that you would help us in our unbelief. That you would rush our hearts through your Holy Spirit with a profound sense of who you are. I pray that we would turn away from our self-muscling, our desire to promote our notoriety, and instead, I pray that you would give us a faith that relies fully on you, oh God. Now, in your own way, let's take some time tonight to thank God for his love. Come on, pray to him. Let's cry out to God right now and ask him for genuine humility. Ask him to purge you of your pride. Ask him to force reliance upon him. Let's pray right now for genuine humility. Let's fill this room right now with ownership and confession of recent sin. The scripture says he's faithful and just to forgive us. 
Let's spend some time right now owning that and confessing that to the Lord. Let's ask God right now for strength to endure. We're going through hardships of many kinds in this room. Easily giving in to temptation and pursuing comfort. Let's pray right now for strength through His Spirit to endure and that endurance through suffering producing character and hope. Come on, let's pray to Him. Lastly, if you knew that God would answer one prayer in your life, not as a genie, but as the king of the universe, if you knew he would answer one prayer, what would you pray right now? What prayer would you lay at the foot of his throne and plead and say, God, please answer this? Pray that one prayer. As the lights are still up, I want you to reach underneath your chair. And there's a pen and a piece of paper underneath your chair. On that white post-it, with that pen, I want to invite you to take a few seconds and write out the prayer that you just prayed. What is the one prayer that if God answered, it would, it would be the one thing you would say. If he was right here right now, Lord, please answer that. Just pen that on that white post-it.
now holding that in your hand, I want to invite you to stand with me. Let's stand together. He's able to do far more abundantly than everything that's written in this entire room. He's able to knock all of those expectations far beyond what we can even begin to grasp. And so tonight as we worship, I want you just to take that one post-it off. And at any point as we're worshiping, I want to invite you just to come up and plaster all of those things on this back wall. Just stick it somewhere, anywhere back here. And for us tonight, this wall becomes our offering before the throne of God, saying, God, we believe you are able. You're able to heal this disease. You're able to repair this relationship. You're able to give hope to this marriage. You're able to break the chains of infertility. You're able to reverse the effects of all of our sin. And as this wall is filled tonight, may it be the reminder for us of who it is that we serve. It's not a myth or an idea. It is the God, He, the God of the universe. And so the benches are up here to pray. The wall is open. Let's now, as a body, respond to the God who's able.